This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. There's a couple announcements this evening. One is going to be a repeat from last week for those who were were not here. Um, When you walked in this evening, you found this on your seat detailing uh, some help needed for making meals um, on Sunday uh, during, in September when we start our meals back up again. The plan as of this point is to continue our normal life rhythm as a church, um, eating every single week together after our worship gathering starting in September. So September 1st, we will resume with a potluck, just like we normally do on the first week of every month. Since that is Labor Day weekend, it tends to be a little light. So if you will be here, please plan on bringing a dish for that week. That will be our first meal back as a community. After that, currently we have... um, we have enough volunteers to prepare and to organize our meals for one more week a month. So we will for sure have a meal at least one more time in September. Um, but we will, not, we will not have meals on weeks that we don't have people to prepare food and the space for us. Um, I'm, it's kind of common sense. But um, the ask now is that if... You are a part of this community and cooking or preparing meals is something that you love to do or something that you would like to give to the community in that way. Your help is deeply needed. Um, Brenna Wilson organizes our meals. She's in the very back. Um, And she can kind of uh, really bring it down to reality. It's not as scary as it sounds um, doing the whole thing even though it is, it is a big task. But please speak with her um, if that's of interest to you um, or if you would like to serve our community in that way. It's a huge need. And also, you don't need to do it alone. You can organize a team uh, and be a part of the team of people who do it as well. So know that for September. Hopefully, we will resume just like normal in our normal rhythm coming up. The second announcement is... Um, You know, in the third week of every month, we have our simple meal offering. Um, This is the second week, but I wanted to highlight a real pronounced need in our community. Patrick Lowcamp, who's sitting in the very back, um, has been a part of our community for several years now. Um, And Patrick has, for his entire life, has been battling cystic fibrosis alongside his brother. Um, And his father, several years ago, was diagnosed with cancer and has been battling uh, cancer for a long period of time. In that process, um, with health issues in their family, Over the course of time, Patrick's home has fallen into disrepair, and um, the city several, about a month and a half ago or two months ago, um, put a lien on their family's home, um, and uh, with a lot of contingencies of things that needed to be done and fines that needed to be paid to bring it back up uh, to code for the, the family to keep the home. Um, This is a multi-generational home. Um, His grandparents, I believe, built the home or were the first to live in this home years and years and years ago and has been handed down. It's here in Southeast Portland and Woodstock. Patrick um, is limited on him and his brother and his father are limited on the physical effort that they can put in, um, though they they have been working toward um, meeting the city's demands and helping but push comes to shove, they need, they need hands, they need help um, to help clean up, 
to help um, get a garage demoed and a yard cleaned up, and um, ultimately they'll need some help. And this is a longer term theme uh, thing to help pay some of the fines that, that have accumulated and stuff. But um, knowing Patrick and knowing, you know, he has asked me to share this, but um, Patrick is not one to, uh, to reach out uh, for help in these, in these ways, and it's a, it's a big move for him uh, to do that, to be vulnerable for him and a family to our community. And so um, I invite you to speak with, with Patrick afterwards. He's going to be organizing some work days at his home um, to, to help this family out in, in working towards getting their house back uh, and this family stable again. So... Um, and in way of that, not just announcing it, um, I want to take this time for us to just kind of extend our hands and pray over Patrick and his family, um, pray a prayer of blessing, um, as and asking the Spirit to to kind of navigate through this this tiresome journey that his family has been on. All right, Jesus, we thank you for Patrick. We thank you for his family. We thank you for the way in which this home over the years has been used. Um, for the community through um, Boy Scouts and all kinds of different activities that have happened in this space. Lord, we pray that um, through this community and beyond that you raise the help that is needed um, or you, you gather it, Lord, so that this work can be done. We ask for grace. In Jesus' name, ask um, that these fines from the city that um, God, that your spirit intervenes and that there is, uh, there is grace and forgiveness for, for these things. Raise up your servants. Bless Patrick and his family. May the spirit of peace rest on their home where there is anxiety. We just ask for calm and peace in Jesus' name. Walk through this journey with them. Make them aware of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Those are the two announcements uh, for this week. Um, I guess one last thing to, to make you aware of. September 8th, the second week of September, is when we will be kicking off into the new church calendar. And that is when we will be announcing some of our community life groups and different things that will be happening through the fall. So if you can be here for that week, it'll be an important week. Please stand with me as we begin with saying the Apostles' Creed together this evening. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Good evening. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, 
But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is the word of the Lord. us to believe in something impossible. Whenever I'm asked to believe in something impossible, I think of that little passage from uh, Alice and Wonderland through the looking glass. You may remember this conversation between Alice and the White Queen. The White Queen says, how old are you? I'm seven and a half, exactly. You needn't say exactly, the Queen remarked. I can believe it without that. Now, I'll give you something to believe. Five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, said the queen in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I'd believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. I think when it comes to the assertion that Jesus was born of a virgin, people fall either into an Alice camp or into a queen camp. They either think it's an impossible thing to believe in, or they think it's just easy enough if you just try hard. Today we're going to explore what the creed means when it says that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. What's at stake in making that particular claim? Whether we need to take that literally in order to be saved or what happens if we just find it too hard to swallow altogether. Right at the beginning, I want to affirm that uh, belief in the virgin birth is a legitimately difficult thing, especially for our modern scientific minds today. It's like asking one to disregard all of the normal patterns of human reproduction, all experience to the contrary, and all the best evidence and testimony about where babies come from and believe something else instead. Now, last week, some of you got a little squirmy when I was talking about conception, wondering if I was about to give you a sex talk. I have saved that all for this week. (laughs) I'm just kidding, but we are going to be talking about some uncomfortable things. And I think for some of us, Examining or asking questions about any part of the Bible altogether gets us into like kind of nervous twitches. And it's easier for us to just shut down those, li- those lines of inquiry. The Bible says it, so I believe it. That's going to settle it for me than to pursue them. But I don't ever want to shut someone down for asking good, honest questions that come out of their reading of the Bible or learning Christian doctrine. The author Anne Lamott wrote that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty, she writes, is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness, and discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. Our exploration of the virgin birth tonight makes a mess or makes you feel some emptiness or some discomfort. Know that shortly the light is going to return. 
I first want to talk about what is at stake with this claim that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. The most popular answer is, and the one I certainly grew up understanding, was everything. Absolutely everything in the Christian faith is at stake on the claim that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Albert Moeller, an evangelical theologian and the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he traces that very argument in a book that he wrote and released earlier this year on the Apostles' Creed. Here are some excerpts from his chapter on the phrase that we're exploring tonight, born of the Virgin Mary. He writes, A Christian who doesn't believe in the virgin birth is in eternal peril, for the one in whom he believes is not the one who is testified to in the scriptures. Moreover, if Christians deny the the virgin birth and treat the conception of the Holy Spirit as a myth, then they threaten a whole range of other Christian doctrines, the truthfulness of scripture, the humanity of Christ, the sinlessness of, of Christ, and the nature of grace. Christians today must affirm the virgin birth of Christ. Indeed, the Christian faith and the Bible on which that faith stands demands it. To deny the virgin birth despite the fact that the gospels assert it would compromise the authority of scripture. Christians do not have a choice to accept or reject the truth of scripture. Scripture exercises authority over the Christian and he or she must accept its truth. For Moeller, the very trustworthiness of Scripture, and by extension, the entire Christian faith, rests on whether or not an individual can believe in the literal virgin birth. That's a lot of freight for one doctrine to carry. So must it. Unfortunately for Moeller, he has used a slippery slope argument to make his case. And this is a common logical fallacy in argumentation in his case, his argument is that for some, if someone does not believe in the virgin birth, then they are bound for eternal peril. But even a cursory examination of that argument just shows it isn't true. It doesn't hold. Well, first, nowhere explicitly or implicitly in the scriptures does it say that belief in the virgin birth is conditional to one's salvation. As we heard a couple of weeks ago, the only claim that is necessary for salvation and redemption to God is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Questioning or even rejecting the virgin birth does not land one in eternal peril. Second, to question or reject the literal virgin birth doesn't result in the rejection of the truthfulness or the authority of scriptures as asserted. Moeller claims that we must believe in the virgin birth because the gospels assert it. And there he's, he's half right. Two of the four gospels talk about the virgin birth. That's Matthew and Luke. Mark and John have no virgin birth narrative at all, even though John's gospel tells us more about Mary, the mother of Jesus, than any of the four gospels. Additionally, Paul, in all of his writings about Christ, salvation, the Christian witness, redemption, never mentions the virgin birth, nor do any of the other New Testament authors. For them, it seems that one's salvation, discipleship, and view on the authority of of Scripture can be constructed without mentioning any belief in a virgin birth. Third, the virgin birth is not necessarily necessary for Jesus to be sinless, as Moeller wants to claim. Another theologian, a guy named Michael Byrd, who agrees with Moeller in many other respects, he flatly refutes him on this point. Byrd writes, there is nothing in the nativity accounts that suggests that Jesus' sinlessness is at stake. When we read the Matthew and Luke accounts, they seem to have other reasons for making the claim that Mary was a virgin. 
So that Jesus could be born sinless is just not among them. So to believe in the virgin birth may mean that one gives up some things. To not believe in the virgin birth means that one gives up some things. But their salvation, the authority of, Christ, of Scripture, and the sinlessness of Christ are not among them. So why is there this temptation to go to such an extreme when it comes to the virgin birth? I like what Ben Meyer writes about this particular phrase in the creed. He says, the trouble starts when we take this line of the creed and view it in isolation. It would be like finding a bicycle chain if you've never seen a bicycle. In order to understand why we should want to believe in the literal virgin birth, we need to place it in its proper context. We must first remember what was going on when the gospels were being written and the creed was being developed. In this regard, Huso Gonzalez is helpful. He reminds us that during its early centuries, Christianity faced many challenges. And its greatest was not from those who claimed that Jesus was a mere man, but from those who claimed that he was not really human. That he was a purely spiritual being who seemed to be human, but was not. And this is very different from Moeller's concern that rejecting the virgin birth somehow discredits Christ's divinity or the authority of scriptures. Rather, the community of Christ who are writing about the virgin birth, the very people that we inherit this doctrine from, and the people who are writing the creed that put the virgin birth in the creed, they were doing something entirely different. They were doubling down on Christ's humanity. Houston Gonzalez goes on to write, on this score, one could even suggest that the word virgin in the phrase born of the Virgin Mary should be translated born of Mary the Virgin, for it is intended as a way to refer to a particular woman more than it is a way to underscore her virginity. The writers of the creed and perhaps even the gospel writers were trying to situate the birth of Christ in history. That he really was physically born to a specific woman, one that they knew as Mary the Virgin. Jesus didn't just appear one day. He didn't just walk out of the wilderness. He wasn't pure spirit that just looked like a human. He was fully God and fully human, and human to the extent of being carried in a specific womb and born of a specific woman. This completely offended the sensibilities of the Greco-Roman culture of that time. Birth was a painful and gross and common thing. That is not the kind of thing that you would expect a God to enter into the world through. Have you been present for a birth? I have, for two of them. Even in our over-sanitized Western medical culture, it is an untidy experience. There's pain, there's fear, there's body fluids, all of them. There's screaming, there's catharsis, there's exhaustion, and finally, there's bewilderment. If God was going to take on human form, it certainly wouldn't be through something as base or as messy as birth, would it? For the early Christians, the divine conception was totally easy to accept. That seems well and proper for God. But a real physical birth? Ew. Nestorius, who we talked about briefly last week, took issue with the claim that the fully divine, fully human Christ could have been carried and born by Mary. At that time, around 430 AD, Christians were calling Mary the Theotokos. This is a Greek word that means God-bearer. It's a way of affirming that when Mary was pregnant with Jesus in her womb, she contained the full divinity of God inside her. And that is a real mind-blowing kind of claim. 
And that just went too far for Nestorius. He couldn't go there because to do so would mean that Mary would have physically given birth to God. So he said, listen, it's fine if we call her Christotokos, which means the Christ bearer, and thereby assert that she's giving birth to the human part of Jesus's nature. But that God would willingly undergo the actual process of being in a womb, of being birthed by a woman. That somehow diminished God's divinity for Nestorius. When he was refuted at the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD, the church agreed that Mary must be called the Theotokos precisely because it preserved the mystery and the miracle of the incarnation. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox churches still use this word to refer to Mary to this day. It is this physical birth to a real, identifiable person that the gospel writers and the creed community were so concerned with. It actually happened. Look again at those accounts in Matthew and Luke. They both go to great lengths to identify Mary as a real historical person. For goodness sake, Matthew gives a whole genealogy from Adam all the way down to Joseph before he brings in Mary. He wants to show that Mary and Joseph are a continuation of this Messiah promise of Israel. Identification of Jesus as the heir to the Davidic promise, that is Matthew's first aim in that birth narrative. Once he does that, he doesn't even call Mary directly a virgin. Instead, he quotes from Isaiah 7, which is often rendered as it was earlier, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. A few things about the use of that particular quote. First, the Hebrew word for virgin in this chapter of Isaiah is, lo- is translated in other locations simply as young girl or maid. There's nothing to suggest that Isaiah is writing us specifically about the girl's sexual history. Second, the verses go on in Isaiah to describe a boy who will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right. And that before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the the right, the land of two kings you dread will be laid to waste. And those verses just don't seem to apply to the ministry and life of Jesus. Maybe we could make the curds and honey bit apply to John the Baptist, but are then we then claiming that he is Emmanuel? And the two kings in context are two of Ahaz, the king of Judah, two of his biggest rivals. Third, it seems that Matthew's use of this verse was not to emphasize the virginity of Mary, but to identify the child she carried as Emmanuel. Because he goes on to explain in a little parentheses what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. So the identity of Jesus as divine in origin was his second claim. Luke's use of the word virgin in reference to Mary is similar. He first uses it to identify this particular young girl in Nazareth, in Galilee, engaged to a particular man named Joseph, who is in David's lineage. His subsequent uses are to highlight that God was going to perform a miracle, namely that without a man involved, Mary would carry and bear the Messiah. Always, though, the emphasis is either on the identification of who this woman is or what God is up to. Over time, however, the emphasis of the Christian community shifted. It shifted to Mary's virginity itself rather than the one that she carried and birthed. This resulted in an expansion, an ever-expanding list of assertions about Mary in an attempt to preserve her virginity for all time. 
among them are that she never consummated her marriage with Joseph and remained a virgin the rest of her life, causing some pretty neat backflips and hurdles to understand references to Jesus' brothers. A ninth century theologian asserted that Jesus could not have been born through the natural door. I'll let you think about that for a moment. Because had he been born through the natural door, that might also compromise Mary's virginity. It was extended uh, later in church history to uh, believe that Mary herself was conceived without sin so that she wouldn't transmit original sin to Jesus. In our modern culture, the obsession with Mary's virginity has served to perpetuate a kind of purity culture that elevates Mary to some sort of archetype of sexual chasteness to which all unmarried women should strive, wrongly asserting that Mary's purity was the reason that God chose her to bear the Christ. But none of these assertions find their source in the biblical material. These and others like them only serve to distance Mary from being a normal woman, one with whom we might identify. And it serves to distance the birth of Jesus from a normal birth and therefore a fully human existence, which is always the start of heresy. So let's be clear about the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus is unique in its conception and in its reception. Mary's virgin status is both identifier and intensifier of a mystery. And once she was pregnant, things followed a fully human course. Messy, painful, and wonderful, and real. So the first thing that the creed is up to in asserting that Jesus was actually physically born in this world is that he was born to a real woman that can be located in space and time a woman the creed knows as Mary, the virgin. But the second thing that the creed is up to in this claim is situating this miraculous pregnancy in the long story of God's work in Israel. Ben Meyer writes, the confession that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin isn't just a bit of theological eccentricity. It's a reminder that our faith has deep roots in Israel's story, in Israel's scripture. The coming of the Savior wasn't a new thing. It was the culmination of the whole great story of God's being faithful to the people of Israel. And last week we heard, we heard about how these miraculous pregnancies are a key part of the story of Israel. God raises up leaders through these special pregnancies so that we can know that it's God who acted. In that way, Mary's pregnancy stands in line with all the other stories, that of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, Samuel and Samson but that Mary was also a virgin ups the ante a little bit. Yes, her pregnancy is special and miraculous, and that puts her in line with these other things in Israel's story, but in the context of the story of Israel, that specialness should signal something else because this is a doubly special event. Karl Barth writes, the miracle of the virgin birth has not, only, has not ontic, which he means physical, has not ontic, but noetic, revelatory significance. It advertises here what takes place as miracle in general and now as just this special miracle, it is the watch before the door drawing our attention to the fact that we are here concerned with the mystery, with God's free grace. What Bart is saying there is that the virgin birth is a miracle meant to point us to God, not to Mary. 
We're supposed to be astounded with what God is up to, not with Mary's sexual history. That God has chosen to do this miraculous thing without involving a male human, that is a testament to God's grace. It is God who acts and God alone. Again, Bart writes, God himself creates it. Only God can create it. God creates it because he wills to create it. This is nothing that humanity could have done for itself. Even Mary's role in all this is very limited. Other than that she is situated in the line of David by virtue of her impending marriage to Joseph, we're given no reason why she was chosen. She didn't deserve to be the recipient of God's biggest mystery and miracle. Bart asserts that she wasn't specially blessed before God chose her to to bear the Messiah, simply that God found favor in her. She was blessed because she believed what the angel told her, and she said yes. Someday, perhaps when we come to it in Advent, I want to explore what it means when the scripture asserts that all generations will call Mary blessed. I think that we in the Protestant tradition in general and in the evangelical stream in particular have done Mary a huge disservice by kicking her to the curb as merely the woman who happened to contain the womb through which Christ entered the world. But that's a sermon for a different day. The gospel writer's emphasis on connecting Mary and Joseph and Jesus to the line of David serves to highlight that in this miraculous birth, God was continuing the promise to send a Messiah, a Redeemer, from Israel to Israel and then to the rest of the world. When we read that, we're supposed to go back and review all the promises of that Messiah and realize that Jesus is that guy. That Jesus was born of a virgin is a monument to God's grace. God took the initiative. God took the action. God needed nothing other than God's own will to do it, and God did it. Mary received God's grace, and it was made manifest within her. So then where does that leave us? I absolutely believe in the literal virgin birth of Jesus. I think you should too. But why? Because it stands as this sign that what the angel Gabriel claimed and what the scriptures testify to are actually true, that God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Theologian Michael Byrd puts it this way, I'm inclined to understand the nativity stories as a clarification to Jesus's divine sonship rather than as the necessary grounds for it. So what then is at stake? Why believe in a literal virgin birth? Well, I would say it's not to establish the authority of scripture. The authority of scripture establishes itself. It's not so that we can claim that Jesus was sinless. There are many other bigger reasons why we can claim that Jesus was sinless. But to receive this is a real sign of the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus dealt in these kind of signs and symbols all the time. Take his healing of the paralytic on the mat, which is one of my favorite miracle stories. The primary thing that Jesus does in that story is to what? It's to forgive his sins. He could have stopped there. He could have let people make an internal judgment about whether or not they believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive this guy's sins as he just proclaimed. But Jesus went further than that. He knew that this could give people an escape route, giving them the option not to believe that he could forgive sins. So he also performed a miracle 
He told that man to get up, take his mat, and go home. This miracle was a sign to the people, pointing to something even more mysterious and miraculous than the man's physical healing, to Jesus' authority and power to forgive the man's sins. In the same way, the miracle of the literal virgin birth serves as a sign that points to a much bigger mystery and miracle that God became fully human without giving up any of God's divinity and entered into this world just as we all did, through pain and through blood. So can you be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth? Perhaps. The testimony of Scripture on what is necessary for salvation seems to leave that open as a possibility. But in doing so, you are giving up the primary tether to the incarnation. If one is to relegate the virgin birth to a metaphor or to a late addition to the Christian tradition or to an attempt to synthesize the Christ birth narrative with other pagan God-man narratives, then that person is forfeiting one of the physical signs that God has given us to understand this spiritual mystery. And why would we want to give those up? All of us are searching for more mystery, more miracle in this life. We want things we can hold on to that witness to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in this world, to the work of new creation that God is undertaking. And those things, those signs, must necessarily look different than this normal, broken order of creation we have now. And the virgin birth is just that. It resists the temptation to be individualized or spiritualized. It forces us to reckon with the power of God and the activity of the Spirit in time and in space. And I think that that's very good news. Last week, I challenged us to receive the mystery of the incarnation. And this week, I challenge us to receive the miracle of the incarnation. Though we cannot fully explain it, I ask us to accept that God chose Mary the Virgin to carry, birth, and raise God in human form in a way that we can't possibly understand a way that we must receive by faith, God was contained in the womb of a woman, creator hemmed in by creation, in order that all creation might be redeemed. As we approach the table this evening, this altar upon which we remember the end of the life of Christ, I invite you to meditate on its beginning, that before his body could be broken for you, which is represented here by the bread, before his blood could be shed for you, which is represented here by the cup, before that body and blood could mean these things, that body and blood first had to enter into this world. That self-same body and blood entered into our world through the body and blood of the Virgin Mary, who said yes to the angel Gabriel, to God's plan of redemption for all. This table is the Lord's table and the invitation to come tonight is his. So I would invite you to come taste and see that the Lord is good. Those leading us in worship and serving communion will come forward. I ask that the rest of us would stand as we pray together. Oh God, we humbly ask to receive the mystery of your incarnation and the miracle of the virgin birth. Wherever our doubts or frustrations might arise, we ask for curiosity and wonder. 
Where one might see a stumbling block, we ask for you to put a monument that testifies to your grace and to your love. For you have done this, Lord. We can only receive it. Help us, Lord, to receive it. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.